It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, Can Christianity and Paganism Work Together? Coming up in this episode, Ours is a World of Dramatic Differences. Paganism is a very different belief system from Christianity, but pagans generally believe in doing good and building others up. Those are good things. How should we respond? Should we embrace them along with their beliefs, or should we hold them at arm's length? Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host, for over 20 years. It's a privilege to be with you both. And Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Jonathan, what is our theme scripture for today's episode? Exodus 20, 1 and 3. Then God spoke all these words, saying, You shall have no other gods before me. Our religious world has changed dramatically. In the bygone days of generations past, we had clear lines that marked our differences. Christianity seemed to have clear and unmistakable differences from religions like Hinduism, Buddhism, and Druidism. Our one God and one Savior approach stood in an entirely different category from the multiple God eternal journey that mystics and pagans adhered to. Here we are in the age of technology, and some of those lines and distinctions seem to be blurred and fading. There are movements now announcing that we are all really on the same journey of enlightenment and walking side by side on similar paths. So is this a good thing? Should we as Christians embrace these seemingly progressive steps or should we run the other way? Today's conversation will examine what paganism is and attempt to understand how it works. This is a monumental task. We will look at those who hold these beliefs which are contrary to Christianity at every turn with the same respect and decency that we would want them to see us with. So this is a conversation about a comparison, and we're going to be very, very specific about it. We're going to unfold it in stages, if you will. So to begin with, let's go to a soundbite from The Many Faces of the Occult. And this is to basically introduce paganism to us. I am a pagan. I am a part of the whole of nature. The rocks, the animals, the, animals, plants, the plants, the elements that are my relatives. I am a pagan. I pay attention to the seasons within myself. Beginnings, growth, growth creation, harvest, endings, rest, and beginnings again. I am a pagan. We're all looking for answers. We don't claim that we have all the right answers, but we have the right answers for us. I live a normal life like everybody else. I'm a pagan. Well, there's nothing wrong with appreciating nature. No, there is nothing wrong with appreciating nature. And you can see that the appreciation of nature is a basis of paganism. But there's much, much more to it than that. So, Julie, let's, let's set some groundwork, shall we? Sure. We're going to go ahead and quote from an article called Understanding Paganism, kiobsinternational.com and here's how it starts as it was in ancient time and so it is today paganism is based on the patterns and agricultural cycles of the earth and on the belief that everything is alive 
The earth and all of her inhabitants, animals, plants, oceans, even the air is connected and dependent on one another. And this belief extends to the planets, the stars and universe. Everyone and everything are conjoined and the divine is recognized in all and manifests itself in the circle of life, end quote. And paganism is an umbrella term for earth-based faiths. Some examples are the shamans, druids, and Native Americans. And they say Mother Earth is a life force. They utilize her blessings, such as flowers, herbs, trees, stones, natural metals, crystals, leaves, stems, animals, humans, and other natural objects of this earth. Modern paganism seeks to revive or be influenced by historical pagan beliefs. The movements within it are diverse and do not share a single set of beliefs, practices, or texts. And that's a really important point as we go through this. And paganism is rising around the world. Norse paganism features the Viking gods. It's Iceland's fastest growing state-sponsored religion. Lithuanian's pagan folklore group was just granted state recognition. And it's said to be the fastest growing religion in the United Kingdom. Wicca, sometimes called white witchcraft, is considered the largest and best known form of modern paganism. We will explore that further in part two of this topic. So there's a lot to paganism and is basically very nature-based and has a lot of things built upon that. So we want to look at that and say, okay, great appreciation for nature. Let's put that in perspective and now compare it to the basis of Christianity. So we're going to go to Christian scriptures here and and biblical, uh, looking at the Bible, we're going to take a look at the Old Testament and just compare what we just heard with what the Bible says, see what the similarities and or differences are. So the Bible creation account in Genesis. Let's go right back to the beginning. So Jonathan, Genesis 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. So you have God specifically as the original moving force of everything. In the beginning, it didn't just happen. God created the heavens and the earth. You have a very specific, very dynamic approach. Let's continue. Let's go further. Let's go skip down to Genesis 1, 11 to 12. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plant yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them and after their kind. And God saw that it was good. So the, the, the process continues. God said, God initiated the earth sprouting vegetation and bearing fruit and he put it in order and it says and god saw that it was good so we've got a very strong distinction already coming up as we look at paganism with this love and reverence for nature versus our christian approach so let's do let's let's do our first comparison observation here julie Uh, paganism makes that which is created divine And the Bible declares that the divine God made everything. That is a major difference. Now, you might say, well, wait, that doesn't sound like it's so much of a difference. It it is an enormous difference, and we're going to develop that as we go. Julie, let's get back to that article and just continue the description of paganism. 
Sure. Again, the article's title was Understanding Paganism. The pagan calendar, also known as the wheel of the year, marks the Earth's four seasons, tracks the sun's continual journey through the sky, and the waxing and waning cycles of the moon. It is a symbol of the circle of life, representing the continual birth, death, and renewal cycle as conveyed by the changing seasons. So you have a cycle, a circle of life from the pagan perspective. And you can see that and say, well, yeah, that circle of life does exist. And it does. But let's look at how this is different from Christianity. Let's go back to the Bible account of creation, Genesis 1. Jonathan, let's go to verses 14, 15, and then 17 and 18. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So God puts things in order and he says it's for the seasons, for the days and for the years. It gives a sense it's for the measuring of the moving forward of his plan. And that's just a small hint of one of the major differences because paganism is about this circle of life, this never-ending renewal cycle, which we're going to comment on more as we go. So let's go to our next comparison observation between paganism and Christianity. Julie? Well, paganism attributes the cycle of seasons to the cycle of birth, death, and, as you said, Rick, renewal. The Bible attributes the sun, moon, and seasons to the perpetuation of life. There is a difference in it's all part of a circle versus the perpetuation of a life that continues to move forward. We'll develop that further as we go. But so far, we're seeing the same nature looked at it two, in two very, very different ways. Julie, back to the article. Paganism honors the divine in all of its forms, male, female, or genderless. Female energies and attributes manifest themselves as goddesses, and male energies and attributes as gods. Each must be represented in balance, showing the partnership, interconnection, and dependence on one another. So this is interesting to me because we've, we've done a lot of research on paganism in past years, and this is the first time I've come across a description of paganism that says that honors the divine in all forms, male, female, or genderless. The genderless, I never—now, maybe it did, but I never saw it appear before these last several years. And I think it's the, the, the opening up of the belief system to say anybody and everybody is welcome here. Inclusiveness. But, but paganism, when you study its format, it is very, very male, female-oriented in so many ways on so many different levels. And Jonathan, you said earlier how it's a diverse belief system, and it's really impossible to say paganism is, and just name one thing. It's a little bit like a restaurant buffet where you individually choose what you want to put on your plate. And for example, some views include all things are divine, and the divine is in and one with all things. And then there's also the concept of polytheism, and that's where you believe in multiple gods, goddesses, or other spiritual beings, and you say that there's both a material world and a spiritual realm where these deities live. Another point, humanity itself is divine, and nature is holy, simply because it is home to the divine. 
So in other words, the earth here is the spirit realm because humanity itself is divine. And there's one other uh, branch that we found that was interesting, animism. And that means there's a spirit or a consciousness to every animal, plant, and inanimate object. So all things are enchanted like rocks and they're therefore sacred. There's a lot to, you you see how it, it, absolutely reveres nature no ma- whatever whatever branch of paganism you're looking at there's a reverence for nature as having this incredible deep and abiding power so let's look now at the creation of mankind genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 then god said let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Was Adam created divine, Rick? No, because Adam, as we will see, died. Divinity doesn't die. Divinity is self-perpetuating. And that's one of the things that we're going to see is a major, major marker between Christianity and paganism. So let's go to our next comparison observation. Julie? So again, depending on which part of paganism you subscribe to, uh, paganism attributes divinity to everything. It finds the divine in all things. The Bible proclaims that God's divine will was to give the humanity created in his likeness dominion over the earth as mortal beings. So there's a difference, a major difference between the mortality of man and the divinity of the everything that we're supposed to be a part of in paganism. It's a major difference. It's a major philosophical change that says both cannot be true at the same time. So we're looking at this. Can paganism and Christianity work together? This is one of those areas to say, hmm, this doesn't seem to fit. We're going to go further and show you how some of us are, are really trying to, to, to push that envelope. But let's go back to the many faces of the occult and get an, a little bit more of a sense uh, of paganism. I definitely have a community here. I look around and I feel safe that I don't have to hide who I am. Doing rituals and casting spells, I couldn't imagine a day without it. It's kind of fun that we can share paganism together. My daughter and I, both being pagan, helped connect us. The fact is we're all here together and we're all searching for meaning. We took all of our clothes and our jobs and everything away. We're all the same. It's just a different way of life. Normal is a very subjective sort of term for anybody because we're all quirky. We're all slightly crazy. For me, it is a form of freedom. Well, these are good words. Community, fun, family connection, quirky, freedom. Yeah. All we're missing is puppies and chocolate. <laughs> well, and, and, but you get that sense. You get that, that drawing sense of you can be relaxed here. You can be welcome here. You can have a place here. You can be recognizable here and not have to worry. And look, who doesn't want that? And, 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 there, and, and there's, there's some value there. However, we need to understand what it is we're putting our belief into to get the kinds of things that we want. 
And do those things actually go together? Let's go back to the creation account in Genesis 1, 28 and 29, after God has created uh, humanity. But first, why don't we go back to, I just wanted to read a little bit more about that article. So um, examples include the earth goddess. She is the fertile earth giving life to an all earthly creatures. And the green man symbolizes life, the eternal cycle of death and regeneration. He is symbolic of the union mankind has with nature. End quote. Let's talk about that green man a little bit. He is said to be the ultimate omnipresent guardian of the forest. He represents the spirits of the trees, plants, and foliage. And illustrations show him with leaves, acorns, berries, and often the greenery is coming out of his mouth. And you'll probably see decorations with him at your local garden store. He appears on medieval church walls in Europe, in old Scottish cemeteries. This green head, this green man, shows up across cultures over a large span of time. And in modern spring pagan festivals, he's represented by a young man covered in greenery, leading the festival procession. So again, you see the earth, the goddess, the female, and the green man, the male, they're working together in this sacred uh, work of reverencing and and, and essentially deifying so much of, of what we see around us. Now we'll go back to the biblical creation account, Genesis 1, 28 and 29. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. So instead of being just a part of this system that all things are equal, God actually put man in control and said you have dominion over these things. So very, very different from paganism. Our next comparison observation, Julie. Paganism attributes life on earth to Mother Earth. The Bible tells us that God created the earth and its abundance to provide support for the family of humanity. There's a difference in the origin. There's a difference in the function. There's a difference in the placement. There's differences at every point. And we need to understand that these things don't coincide. So when we look at Christianity and paganism, let's wrap this up for this segment. Jonathan? The whole process of a beginning purpose is missing in paganism. Mother Earth is not said to have an intelligent designing thought process. Christianity sees God's power and wisdom at work in the unfathomable intricacies of that which he created. And, you know, there's such harmony and symmetry and variety. It's breathtaking. Think about the colors, fragrances, and textures. Only God. This spiritualized veneration of nature really misappropriates God's creation of all things because all the credit and sacredness belongs to him, not to that which he created. And that's where we have our primary issues just getting started in this discussion. So you know what? It is very comforting to have a higher power that is not only powerful, but thoughtful, wise, and proactive. With such differences in the creation process, are there any similarities in Christian and pagan belief systems? Well, the answer to this question is definitely going to be determined by the amount of credibility we not only give to Christianity, but to the Bible itself. There are growing movements within Christianity that look at biblical teachings with an ever-decreasing respect. Not surprisingly, these perspectives, they all have 
pagan ties. Rick, let's go ahead and stop and define some terms. We're going to be talking a little bit about progressive Christianity. Now, this is a recent movement within Protestantism. And like paganism, it's a little hard to define because there is a broad spectrum of beliefs within the movement. So according to Wikipedia, progressive Christianity, as described by its adherents, is characterized by a willingness to question tradition, acceptance of human diversity, a strong emphasis on social justice, care for the poor and the oppressed, and environmental stewardship of the earth. Progressive Christians have a deep belief in the centrality of the instruction to love one another within the teachings of Jesus Christ. This leads to a focus on promoting values such as compassion, justice, mercy, tolerance, often through political activism. Okay, well, that sounds good so far. So, Jonathan, why don't you give us a little information about the New Age movement? Well, the New Age movement started in the 1970s in Western society drawing on earlier influences of the occult, spiritism, and Eastern mysticism. New Agers believe in the coming of an improved human consciousness and internal peace through personal growth. They look to the god or goddesses within themselves to find one's own path to perfection as a path to continual growth and transformation. While they differ in many ways from modern pagans, there are also many similarities. For example, they're often connected to social change movements. There are also hybrid beliefs like the pagan practice of Wicca. And we're gonna hear several sound bites today from Alyssa Childers. She's a Christian singer and public speaker against what she believes to be signs to watch out for of progressive Christianity, which she defines as a shift in the authority for the Christian faith from the Bible to personal conscience subjective spiritual experience or feelings. She's going to discuss similarities between the progressive Christians and the New Age movement. So here are five ways that progressive Christianity and New Age spirituality are kind of the same thing. Number one, there's a redefinition or just an abandonment of the concept of sin. New Agers believe that all people are inherently divine, that we all have this spark of divinity inside of us, and that there's no such thing called sin, but only the failure to remember or to acknowledge our divinity. Not only have we never sinned, but we have no need of salvation. And all of this information supposedly came from Jesus himself. Well, several years ago, I heard a progressive pastor teach on Genesis 3, the famous passage in which Eve was tricked by the serpent into eating the forbidden fruit. And even though he didn't believe that this was an actual historical fact, he was unpacking the moral truth that we could all learn from the creation story. He made the point that when this first couple took that fateful bite in the garden, that it was actually their shame, not their sin, that separated them from God. So in other words, they failed to recognize their belovedness, their inherent goodness and worth. So according to this view, if they were separated from God, it was them who were distant, not God. Without original sin, we are all good, and we're only distant from God in our own minds when we forget that. It's important to note that progressive Christians generally don't believe the Bible is the inspired authoritative word of God. So the difficult parts that show God as vindictive or condoning killing, for example, they say it would be attributed to fallible humans writing what they perceive. Okay, so you, <laughs> you've got a lot in that soundbite that, that, first of all, my ears start to get hot. <laughs> because when you think about, well, for a Christian to say, well, we, we have never sinned and have no need of salvation, 
you know, it, it's it's hard to swallow. Honestly and truly, it, it's hard to swallow. And we look at this as this 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 wave of moving toward this place where everything is okay. And that's really paganism embraces that thought. And for a Christian pastor, pastor to even hint at sin not being a non-factor for humanity and replacing it with moral shame, folks, look from a Rick perspective, that shows a dramatic lack of scriptural integrity. It is a dramatic lack. He literally quotes half a sentence to make this point, and we'll get to that sentence in just a few minutes. So Jonathan, let's put this on the table as it belongs. God gives Adam direct instruction and a direct consequence for potential disobedience. We're going to go back to Genesis to lay it out the way the scriptures tell us. Genesis 2, 15 to 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And, and Rick, that means dying thou shalt die. So in other words, you will begin the dying process. So God initially says to Adam, Here are the rules. If you don't obey the rules, there is a dire consequence. That's already very, very different. Well, it gets more different as we go. When talking to Eve, now we're going to fast forward a little bit, Satan contradicts God's consequence and covers it with the truth. Now let's look at Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Knowing good and evil was true. They would understand good and evil after doing that. But the death part was also true, and Satan said, oh, no, 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 don't worry about that part. Satan essentially left out half of what God said. Okay, let's remember that as we move forward through this account. After following Satan's lead, because Eve is deceived, and Adam makes a choice, after following Satan's lead, Adam and Eve know they did wrong, and they attempt to hide from God. Genesis 3, 9-11. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now that Christian pastor in that last soundbite said, well, the I was afraid because I was naked is the shame part, and that's what the problem was. God says, who told you that? Who told you to be ashamed? And then God's next sentence is, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? So in other words, that what Satan did was quote half of what God said as true and ignore the other part. What that pastor did, frankly, was exactly the same thing. Don't separate, don't, don't, don't parse out the parts of the scripture that just are not convenient for you. It's not scripturally, and there's no integrity with that from a scriptural perspective. Let's continue. God proclaims the consequences of Adam's sin. He describes what dying thou, thou shalt die actually looks like in Genesis 3, 17 to 19. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, 
for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God describes the process of dying and said it's going to be toil and hardship. And, and folks, that's what we live. That's what happened. And it was as a consequence of disobedience. So this idea that, well, there's no sin has no basis in Scripture whatsoever. And one more point on this, God enforces the consequences for Adam's wrongdoing in Genesis 3, verses 22 and 23. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So God says, okay, he's eaten of the tree of, of uh, the knowledge of good and evil. Now he's beginning to understand it. We can't let him stay here because he was told not to. There's a consequence. There's a wrongdoing. And that's what sin is. Absolutely, positively. And paganism doesn't want to touch that. So our comparison observation. Julie? Uh, paganism claims universal divinity and sinlessness. Christianity stands squarely upon biblical teaching that labels sin as the primary wrong to be righted. There is a fundamental difference in the human condition when you look at paganism and Christianity. So there are some features of progressive Christianity we really stand behind, such as studying the Bible topically and contextually and studying the original Greek and Hebrew to understand its meaning better. But some parts of progressive Christianity seem to be regressive, back to the paganism of ancient Greece and Rome. So let's continue with Alyssa Childers about absolute truth. The second thing that progressive Christianity and New Age spirituality have in common is a denial of absolute truth. So New Age thought is marked by its relativism. There's a rejection of objective morality and objective truth. So if something feels true to you, it's true. If it feels right to you, it's right. If something feels real to you, it's reality. In other words, your own thoughts and feelings are your authority for what is true and real. Well, one distinctive feature of progressive Christianity is its denial of biblical authority. Of course, no one operates without an authority. If you remove one authority, you're going to replace it with another. So typically in progressive Christianity, the authority for what someone believes is true shifts from the Bible to themselves by becoming their own moral compass, which will inevitably ebb and flow with culture. And when we look at paganism versus Christianity, we see that paganism puts humanity on this par with the 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 sacredness of life of everything entwined and they they talk about divinity running through all of those things and what we see is there's a fundamental difference a a a, a point at which we have to say no that's not the way it's written that's not the way the bible describes us so here we're talking about no absolute truth let's challenge that and let's use the words of Jesus. If progressive Christianity wants to focus on Jesus, let's listen to Jesus about truth. Jesus, in this next scripture, is speaking to a Samaritan woman at the well about absolute truth. John 4, 22 and 23. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Now, in my studies, I found that the Samaritans were called the people of the land. They were of a mixed nationality placed as colonists in that portion of the country of Palestine previously occupied by the 10 tribes of Israel. 
They worshiped God in nature. So, Rick, they were not welcome at the temple, and the Jews looked down on them. They worshiped God and nature. They had paganism mixed in with their Jewishness, and it put them on the outside because they were revering the wrong things. And Jesus talks about the true worshipers, talking about something that is absolute truth. Another scripture, Jesus teaching those who believed in him about the importance of, guess what, absolute truth. John 8, 31 and 32. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So Jonathan, did he say, and you will know my truth, and my truth will make you free? No, Rick, it is the truth, absolute truth, not Jesus's truth. All of Jesus's words came from God. And we need to be careful when someone tells us it's our personal truth that counts. So uh, we recommend listening to episode 1103, Have We Become Too Sensitized to Sin? Examining Current Moral Standards in the Light of Biblical Teaching, ChristianQuestions.com. All right, another scripture from Jesus about absolute truth. This time he's speaking to the Pharisees on the subject of absolute truth. John 8, 44 and 45. You of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. And Rick, that reminds me of John 1, 29 saying, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, this is the greatest prophet, John the Baptist, and he is proclaiming Jesus's mission. Absolute truth, and it talks about sin as well. So absolute truth is something that the scriptures absolutely revere. They revere the truth of God as absolute. There is no variation in that. Let's take it one step further. Absolute truth related to sin and the role Jesus plays in a Christian's life regarding our sin. Um, And Jonathan, go ahead, and then we'll read the scripture. Yeah, well, let's hear from the apostle John. Now, he walked side by side with Jesus. It told us that we sin. Was he mistaken? Hmm. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So it says he is the propitiation for our sins. Word propitiation means satisfaction. He is enough. He covers our sins. Folks, it's about our sins. We sin. This idea of sin not existing. John, who walked next to Jesus for years, is talking about it. He should know. Let's do a comparison observation between paganism and Christianity. Julie? Paganism gives everyone the right to determine and act upon their own truth. Christianity solemnly proclaims that we must pursue the absolute truth of God to find eternal meaning. The difference is palatable here. You can't look at the two and say, oh yeah, sure, they'll mix. They don't. Folks, let's be honest. Let's have integrity as we look at the scriptures and see what they're telling us and understand what our beliefs are truly based on. So wrapping this up, Christianity and paganism. Pagan principles proclaim humanity to be sinless, and some versions would even say divine, and capable of determining their own personal truth that demands respect from others. Christian principles are based upon the exact opposite. 
We are born sinners and need the truth of God through Jesus to set us free. So the differences are major. We can't deny them. So as we review the painfully obvious differences between pagans and Christians, let's not forget that Jesus died for all. With such obvious differences between paganism and Christianity, do pagans respect the value of Jesus' sacrifice? Well, as we will now see, the very basis of pagan belief disregards any need for a savior. As we move further into our pagan-Christian comparisons, we need to be clearly focused not only on what the fundamental differences in beliefs are, but also on the effects that those differences will have in our daily lives. The entire Bible is centered on the sacrifice of Jesus as the pivotal event that changed the course of humanity. So this is now being reframed as something very different. Let's listen to the third comparison from Ms. Childers. The third thing that progressive Christianity and New Age beliefs have in common is this acceptance of Jesus, but a denial of his blood atonement. So New Age thought leaders almost always couch their teachings in Christian language. Jesus is an example of someone who attained enlightenment by connecting with the divine. He's an example that any of us can follow. His death wasn't a saving act, but the saving comes from within ourselves when we realize that we have the same capabilities as Jesus already within us. So this is often referred to as Christ consciousness. This is why many New Agers see no contradiction in reciting the Lord's Prayer while believing in karma and the healing power of crystals. Of course, this is an outright denial of his atoning death and resurrection. Many progressive Christians also deny the blood atonement of Jesus. Many progressive Christian leaders have popularized the phrase cosmic child abuse, a term first coined by Steve Chalk to protest the idea that a loving God would require the blood sacrifice for the sin of mankind. So this cosmic child abuse is, wow, that is quite a term. It's the idea that the death of Jesus on the cross was unnecessary, unnecessary um, because God was punishing Jesus for an offense he didn't commit instead of just forgiving us outright. So they say that God repaid evil with evil, which is ironically the opposite of Jesus's own teachings. And you know, Rick and Jonathan, this reminds me of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.18 out of the Amplified Bible. For the message of the cross is foolishness, absurd and illogical to those who are perishing and spiritually dead because they reject it. But to us who are being saved by God's grace, it is the manifestation of the power of God. So we look at that and we say, you know, we are so thankful that we understand God's plan actually will reach out to every man, woman, and child, pagan included. Uh, it's just in a different format, and we'll get to that very, very shortly. But the, the point of denying the blood atonement, folks, this is not a God punishing Jesus. This is Jesus paying a price voluntarily. And we look at the heroism of somebody who sacrifices their life for another, and we say, man, what a great example. Well, let's look at Jesus as the ultimate example of one who gave his life, not just for another, for Adam, but everybody else is now included. Jesus himself flatly renounced these ideas of not needing a, sa a Savior. Again, here are the words of Jesus, John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, 
but that the world might be saved through him. So apparently, some Christians take those words and say, well, Jesus didn't really mean that the world would be saved through him. I, I just don't understand how you can take the words of our Savior and make them of no value. I don't understand. The Apostle Peter, let's go further. The Apostle Peter not only affirms our need for Jesus, but shows God's forethought and planning. First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and unspotted, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So this talks about the blood atonement. It talks about redemption. It talks about God having a plan that would put everything right for eternity. And it's the centerpiece of all of this is Jesus and his sacrifice. And for a scriptural step-by-step on this, we recommend episode 1172, How Did Jesus' Resurrection Change Both Heaven and Earth? Uncovering the far-reaching effects of Jesus' sacrifice. So if you're going to look at the blood atonement of Jesus and say, no, it doesn't mean anything, then the, the Apostle Peter, who also walked alongside of Jesus, scripture we just read, probably didn't know what he was talking about either. Well, let's go back to John again. John, who walked with Jesus, he builds upon the presence of light and truth surrounding none other than the sacrifice of Jesus. And again, this is something that paganism looks at and says, no, you really don't need it. It's just, it's just, there's just no value here. Can, can we work together? You've got to ask yourself this question, how could these pieces possibly fit? First John 1, 5-7. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So you have all of the ingredients in this scripture as well. You have the sacrifice, you have the sin, you have truth. It's all there we need to stand for what Christianity should stand for according to Scripture. And no, you don't have a commonality when you see divine in all things and Mother Earth versus God the Father who created the Earth and all the things on the Earth for humanity. Let's do a comparison observation between paganism and Christianity. Well, because paganism makes us divine, we therefore redeem ourselves. And that's if we actually need redemption in the first place. Christianity sees this as not only impossible, but as an act of darkness needing the redemption of Jesus. Hmm. Let's go back to the soundbite again and how Jesus is viewed through this new lens. The fourth thing that progressive Christians and New Agers have in common is this idea that it's all about me. So New Age thought revolves around the self with a capital S. Self-empowerment and realization of our innate divinity are central to its teachings and practices. According to New Age blogger Kaylee Brown, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6, this me that Jesus referred to isn't himself, but rather the self within you. A Course in Miracles also asks the participants to affirm this, quote, my salvation comes from me, end quote. And you know, if we're all divine, why shouldn't it be all about us? 
Well, the typical progressive Christian will probably not agree that it's all about them. In fact, they tend to be very focused on social justice, but that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about a theological shift. So generally speaking, the concept of sin is abandoned or redefined, truth becomes relativized, and a mere martyr's cross gives us a more palatable Jesus, who's a great moral teacher, moral example, and doting best friend forever. So if we can't get everyone to accept Jesus, let's rebrand him so that he'll be more attractive to the masses. Oh, sure. There you go. And just, just a point. You know, she, she mentioned John 14, 6. Jesus speaks John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, when he's preparing a place for his disciples in heaven. It is unquestionably about him and not this extension to us. And, and again, personally, I find this incredibly frustrating when you look at this and you see the dissection of Scripture for the sake of an idea that suits your fancy. Please, Leave the sacred book of Scripture alone if you're going to do that. You can do that with all kinds of other writings. Please leave the Bible out of this. Jesus did not invite us to be his doting best friend forever. You know, that, that takes the sacredness out of Jesus' sacrifice for sin and makes it unrecognizable. It does, and, and it's just an insult. It, it, let, let's go back to Jesus and his words, Luke 9, 23. Here's what he says. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. No, this is our leader. There is work to be done, and we are told if we follow him, it will be difficult. Jesus is saying, you will be persecuted like me. You will suffer for my sake, even the possibility of being put to death for my cause. Denying self is for a greater purpose. So, we have this dramatic comparison between paganism and Christianity. Where does paganism actually come from? Well, folks, we want to give you a scriptural basis for it, and it might not look pretty, but this is, this is what believed to be, we believe to be the truth. The pagan belief system has its profoundly obvious roots in Satan himself. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 15, which is a, is, is a prophecy of the thought pattern of Satan before his fall. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Okay, a prophecy about Satan. Now, the deadly spread of sinful thought. That's what happens in these verses. Notice there's a similar pattern between Satan in this, in, in, in this pattern we just discussed and as we're looking at paganism, how it develops. So let, let's go through this pattern piece by piece from that scripture. Well, let's look at a closer uh, look at what I just read. First, you have said in your heart... So it always begins in the heart when we entertain ungodly thoughts. And with paganism, it begins in the heart, saying to yourself, I am part of this, 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 this connection, this, this, this divine connection that brings everything together. I am an integral part of this. I am, I am, I am godly, essentially, in, in so many ways. Next, I will ascend into the heavens. Well, Satan was already arranged to be God's earthly representative. Remember, he was the covering cherub, protecting the Garden of Eden. 
And so with paganism, it is a rising above the station of where humanity was created. We are created in his image, in God's image, to, uh, to honor and serve God. But this is rising above that station saying, well, you don't really need God so much. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Here, Lucifer was already one of the morning stars of God. And with paganism, it's again, it's saying, we don't need that. We don't need those rules. We are. Therefore, that's good enough. I will sit on the mount of the congregation in the uttermost parts of the north. In other words, where God abides. And with paganism, it, so many branches of paganism really focus in on the divinity. That's, that divinity belongs to the Heavenly Father. It does not belong to humanity. That's where God abides, not us. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. In other words, above the influence of God's presence with man. And of course, paganism says, I don't need God. I don't know. We have Mother Earth. We have all of these things. There's no need for this God thing. We've got everything we already need. I will make myself like the Most High. Not replacing, but rivaling the Most High. And that's the end result. And folks, if you can understand, it, it's a dramatic diversion from holiness. It's a dramatic diversion from holiness. Lucifer was looking, Satan before his fall, his name was Lucifer, was looking for a dominion and a power and an authority beyond his station. He sought to usurp the position of his creator, who he was honored to represent and to work for. Paganism and belief systems like this New Age movement we've been talking about, they give people a sense of power, but without having to conform to something. You know, you just follow self. Doesn't that sound exactly like Lucifer? It does. And that is why we look at this and say this is where paganism has its roots. We are clearly instructed to separate our discipleship from our personal desires and our personal pride. Let's hear from the Apostle John again. What did this eyewitness to Jesus warn us about? 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And from the world, you have the drawing of paganism that is there. So as we look at these connections, let's do another comparison observation. Julie? Paganism places us at the epicenter of our own universe. We guide it from this position of authority. Christianity places us behind Jesus so we can walk in his footsteps no matter the consequences we may face. We are in a completely different position, whether we are pagan or whether we are a Christian. It's a simply a, a, a divided approach, and the two can't be even close to one another as we approach and face our lives. So wrapping this up, Christianity and paganism, Jonathan, what do we have? The pagan principles of being our own savior and being our own ruler remove us from God's favor. He cannot provide for someone who will not acknowledge their own fundamentally needs for reconciliation. And that's the key. We need to understand that we need Jesus. Paganism doesn't make room for that. Can paganism and Christianity work together? When you have that kind of difference, it becomes very difficult. So this has officially now become scary. To consciously remove ourselves from God's favor so we can self-direct is a really bad idea. So, what are the differences in the end result? Where does paganism bring us? 
where does Christianity bring us? Once again, we'll see the stark differences when comparing paganism and Christianity. First and foremost, we need to realize that the conscious plan of God is linear. It brings us ever forward toward a destination in the future. Paganism has no such plan as it is ambiguously cyclical by its very definition. And speaking of definition, it's time for another one. Let's talk about universalism. Universalism is the belief that all mankind will eventually be saved, but saved to what? So universalist says that everyone, regardless of their relationship with God and his son, Jesus, will be resurrected in heaven. And this certainly tears walls down between religions because the destination is all the same in the end. But if you've been a listener of Christian questions for any length of time, you know we are not universalists. But we do believe in a universal opportunity for life. And there's a dramatic difference that we're going to discuss a little bit further after this next soundbite. The fifth belief that New Age belief and progressive Christianity has in common is universalism. So former New Ager and now Christian believer Stephen Bankarts noted that New Age proponents affirm the idea that all roads lead to God. He wrote, the New Age movement holds tightly to religious pluralism and universalism, which is a view that all religions are inspired by a common source— and they all point to the same truth that we will one day reach regardless of what path we choose to get there. So many progressive Christian authors affirm some sort of universalism, either implicitly by denying the concept of a literal hell or explicitly by declaring that all people will be reconciled to God regardless of their beliefs or religious practices. The concept of universal reconciliation, that Jesus will reconcile all sinners to himself, was smuggled into the mainstream consciousness of the evangelical church through the wildly popular 2007 book, The Shack. So none of this is new. Throughout church history, these ideas have emerged again and again. They are old pagan dogmas that are just recycled as new and edgy ideas dressed up in modern garb and given a Christian makeover. You know, and, and she, she brings up a lot of good points, but there's a few points that need some clarification. First of all, you know, she talks about den the denial of hellfire essentially as being this universalistic perspective. Time out on that because hellfire is not taught in Scripture. It is not a scriptural concept. Concept. It is a traditional concept. You look up the words, you look up the meanings, you look up the context, and it does not exist. We have loads and loads of Christian Questions programs on that. Then she talks about the idea that, well, universal salvation for all, you know, that, that's been smuggled in. No, that was there from the beginning. However, it's an opportunity. It's not a guarantee. And that's where everything starts to break down. So let, let's go... And, and look at the concept of being saved, for instance, and then develop it further. The Apostle Paul's jailer. Now, he's talking to his jailer. <laughs> there was a miracle. The, 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 the prison shook, and the, the, the chains came off, but the Apostle Paul and everyone else stayed put. And so the jailer brings him out, and this is what they're talking about, Acts 16, 30-32. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. So that point, uh, believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. There is more to salvation, which we've talked about in other podcasts. But the point here is that only through being a faithful disciple of Jesus, do we have the opportunity to be with him in heaven. 
And to say any and all religious paths will bring you there is just not scriptural. Not even remotely scriptural. So if you claim to be a Christian and you believe that all paths lead to the same place, think again. You're not following the teachings of Jesus. Here, Jesus' teaching about what the resurrection will bring for unbelievers. Jesus' own words, once again, John 5, 28 to 30. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who have done the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The everybody else, not the faithful followers, but the everybody else is guaranteed a resurrection on earth, their own personal miracle. Then comes the hard work of reconciliation. And that's the point. Then comes the hard work. It's linear. We're going from past sin to future life. This is not the cyclical renewal as shown in the seasons. This is different, fundamentally different from paganism. Summing up the marked differences between Christianity and paganism, actually the Apostle Paul does it for us really well in Romans 1. We're going to look at verses 16 through 25. Jonathan, let's start with 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now let's remember, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Roman Christians. This is a pagan society he's writing to. And what he says is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's different, and I'm sharing it with you so you understand the dramatic differences and the fact that you need to walk away from what you used to think and believe. So there are major fundamental differences. Let's start to expand those. Pagans worship the tangible, visible nature around them as being divine. Christians live by faith, which means that we believe in something above us, greater and more powerful. So basic fundamental differences. The Apostle Paul continues, Romans chapter 1, that's now, Jonathan, go to verses 18 and then 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So the apostles talking about the pagan culture suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. The pagan explanation is that our view of God grew out of some spirit. In reality, their gods and their deifying of nature, nature grew out of the obvious power and order of God's intentional creation. And Mother Earth is a personification and doesn't have any power or influence. And that's the point. God is an intelligent creator. The Earth doesn't have a mind. Let's call it as we see it. This is, these are some of the fundamental differences. The Apostle Paul continues in Romans 1, 21 to 23. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible men and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So to the pagan, God Almighty is not relevant. We already talked about that. Rather, he's replaced by that which he himself created. And that which he created takes on the reverence and meaning that belong to God. 
Part of the attraction, I think, of modern paganism is that it's ancient and mysterious with hidden secrets to be discovered. And it promises an almost forbidden sense of community that's special. It's different from the mainstream. There is a buffet of beliefs and rituals and ceremonies and gods for whatever appeals to you with no one to answer to. And that's the key, with no one to answer to. That's what Satan looked for. That's what paganism preaches. There you have it. So what's the result of this deviation from truth? The Apostle Paul again, Romans 1, 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. And there's the core of the problem. Worshipping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Without the acknowledgement of a higher source for our being and our guidance, we are left with a grossly inflated perspective of ourselves as divine and therefore right. Folks, take a look around. Is this world thriving or diving with such a Satan-mimicking view of ourselves? Think about this. One more comparison here uh, of uh, paganism to Christianity. Simply stated, paganism claims the sanctity and reverence that should rightfully be given to God as belonging to that which is common. Christianity's whole objective is to focus our reverence on our Creator and His Son. This next soundbite is a little preview of what's coming in part two when we're going to look at Wicca and the witchcraft side of paganism. People don't realize that prayer technically is a form of magic because they're asking for a change in the forces unseen. I now work with crystals. It's another kind of link to talking to the supernatural. If I'm working with a pendulum, I'm not talking to the crystal itself. I'm talking to the entity that it's linked to. The spell has to be very specific. First of all, you have to form the intent. That's the most important thing. Write your spell. Go to your altar thank the god and the goddess for listening and let it go in faith that it will happen okay there's an awful lot there that <laughs> needs to be commented on but we're going to comment on it uh next week and 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 folks look just just we're going to touch on just a couple of scriptures here james 4 1 to 3 talks about the idea that we have uh, issues within ourselves. And it says, why? Well, it's because you have too many of your own desires driving what should be God-driven. In paganism, in Wicca, you heard what she said. Decide. You need to know. And you put what you, you decide and think and feel forward. That's exactly the opposite of Christianity. You know, the Apostle Paul uh, reminds the formerly pagan Corinthians about what they now stand for in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. We're not going to read it, but the idea is the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly, but they're divinely powerful because we are fighting against powers that are higher than us. Yeah, you know, we talked about paganism having its roots in Satan. Well, don't you think that when, when you look to the, the spirits, whatever the spiritual entity is that they were connecting to, if it's not God, and they don't think it is, then what else could it be? The answer is not something that's full of light, but something that is full of darkness. So what you have is... There, it, we have spiritual weaponry to help arm us against these things. And these trends that we're seeing suggest otherwise. And this is 
what we're going to call sanctimonious divinity. We, we, we make ourselves big and special, but really it's all about God our Father, not ourselves. Finally, Jonathan, let's wrap this up. Christianity and paganism. While we can embrace and accept the goodness of people who truly desire that which is right and helpful, we must always draw a line when it comes to a belief system. Christianity, as taught in the Bible, has no common ground with pagan fundamentals, and the two should never mix. And folks, you know, as we look at this, as we take a pause, take a breath, and look back, what we see is a pathway that sounds inclusive and wonderful and peaceful and, and, and helpful, but it brings you down a road that says it's all about worshiping that which is created. It leaves the grand creator, the designer, out of everything, and it becomes all about us. And then we attribute to ourselves uh, attributes that don't belong. We, we make ourselves divine. We make ourselves the centerpiece. God is our centerpiece through Jesus. Folks, don't be fooled by what you see. You love those people. Love people who are pagans. Love them, love them, love them. But don't love the path. Don't follow where they're going because it's contrary to your Christianity and your Holy Scriptures. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode or other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions to your favorite podcast channels, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast. Please rate us and review us. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. And as we mentioned already, coming up next week, Can Christianity and Paganism Work Together? Part 2. We will delve into Wicca, white witchcraft, and how it works and look at it in relation to Scripture. Talk to you then. <music>